All right, take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Father, I just ask you now to speak through your word. Help me, get out, help me to get out of the way and let your anointing flow. And Lord, as we, uh, as we seek to teach your word tonight, I pray that you would illuminate our spirits and our hearts and help us to catch the spirit behind even issues like discipline so that, um, so that the name of Jesus can be glorified and we can be remade into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Can I tell you something tonight? The kingdom of God is about restoration. Everything about the kingdom of God is about restoration. Not only the redemption and restoration of the human soul, the human person, but even, even the restoration of the earth itself. Scripture tells us that <clears throat> the earth groans in anticipation of its, of its salvation. And so the end result of this thing that Jesus has done is not just us getting to heaven, it's heaven getting to earth. It's that when Jesus returns, the earth and heaven will be made new and Eden will be restored and the kingdom of heaven, will take, Jesus will take up residence on the earth and we will reign with him forever. And so restoration is always the goal in everything that God does, right? So how does that fit into how we relate to those who continue in sin? And, and the reason I want to deal with this is because <clears throat> we, the church world in America, and holiness Pentecostal churches especially, have gone from extreme to extreme. We can, <clears throat> we can go way over here to one side and everything is hell, fire, and damnation. And, and all the preaching is telling us how worthless and sinful we are and, and how God hates us and we better cry and, 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 and weep until, until you know, maybe God will forgive us. And, and that's an aberration. That's not the gospel. Okay, We can go all the way over to the other side and say, well, because God loves us, He's not going to send anybody to hell. And, you know, everybody messes up. And, and God kind of winks at it. He understands you're trying. And, 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 you know, God loves everybody and just wants you to be happy. And, and so, you know, even in Pentecostal charismatic circles, the, the, those two extremes are, are, uh, are, are represented. Now, the truth is, God does love every single one of us. Loves us so much He sent His Son for us. God does hate sin, but God has dealt with sin through Jesus on the cross. And because He loves us so much, He refuses to leave us the way we are. And so, so there's, this, there's this balance that we have to understand that, that really is the gospel. So <clears throat> how then do we relate to those who continue in their sin? I... Um, I can't tell you how many, I'm getting to where I just, it's hard to even want to do weddings anymore because the stuff we have to deal with about what they've already done before they got married is just painful, you know? And, and you know, sin is still sin, right? And so, so how do we deal with this? Well, I want to talk to you tonight about, because Scripture actually says some things about this, and we tend to, again, take it from one extreme or the other. We tend to get it out of balance. 
But I want to talk to you about church discipline. What is church discipline? And the subtitle is Holding to the Standard. 1 Corinthians 5 actually lays down some groundwork about what to do when people continue in sin. People who claim the name of Christ, claim to be Christians, claim to follow Him, and yet they continue unrepentantly in sin. I heard a story a few years ago <clears throat> about a pastor that confronted a leader in his church that was committing adultery perpetually. And it wasn't even like a one-night stand where he messed up. It was an ongoing relationship, an adulterous relationship. The man told him, the, the leader that he confronted said, well, who are you to judge me? I only answer to God. You know? And... Um, <laughs> I think the pastor said something to, to him to the effect of, yeah, but I signed your paycheck. But anyway, um, I heard another story about a church in Florida who threatened to expose a woman that was in sin. The thing was about this story was that the, she, was in, she was in an adulterous relationship with someone in the church, and, and she ended up leaving the church. And after she, led the chur- after she left the church, uh, the church was still threatening to expose her publicly for what she had done. These stories illustrate two pos- extreme positions that people hold regarding how the church should deal with Christians who get caught in sin. If we are reflecting God's love, some say we should not judge and confront. I mean, after all, God loves everybody. And then there's others that say we should expose everything and make it public and, and put it before everybody. So which is right? Which is the right approach? Well, let's, this is what the Lord addresses through Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. So, uh, so we're going to deal with how to handle these things in love tonight. And I know this is not a happy message, but it's a necessary message. If we're going to be the church, we have to be the church. And this is part of what being the church means. So, so what does it mean? So church discipline. So let's look at the first, we're going to work our way through this whole chapter in a very short time, but let's read the first five verses to begin with. You can look on the screen. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and that of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Boy, that's heavy. Uh, I can't imagine... Many of our pastors today say something like that, you know. Well, I just want everybody to get along, you know. Uh, I mean, I just, you know. I didn't call any names. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but listen, here, here's what Scripture tells us. This is what church discipline is. Church discipline removes those who continue in sin from the church. Well, that doesn't sound very loving, Pastor. Actually, it is the most loving thing you can do. Church discipline removes those who continue in sin from the church. So in this situation in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a person in the Corinthian church 
that is walking in sin. He's having sex with his father's wife, probably a stepmother. Um, it could be that his father had married someone much younger. It happens. Um, and maybe his son was attracted to her. We don't know the circumstances. But apparently he's, ha- he's in sexual relations with uh, his stepmother. And, and so the church, rather than mourning about it, are actually celebrating it. They're proud, Paul says. You cannot believe you guys are proud, he says. Now we may ask why the church would put up with something like that. I mean, really, pastor, I mean, have you seen this guy? He's sleeping with his stepmother. Aren't you going to do something? And so we, we, we think, why would they put up with something like that? But the churches put up with stuff like this all the time. Paul mentions some big donors in chapter 1 of this book. So... I wonder, maybe this guy had been the source of much of the church's income. Maybe he was a big donor. We don't know. But let's speculate. Let's look, think about it in, in modern terms. Why would, why would a church today let something like that go on? Sometimes people are afraid of confrontation. I can understand that. I uh, don't like confrontation. I'm like the little dinosaur in Toy Story. I don't like confrontation. Um, I get it. Uh, so, so maybe that was it, but more often than not, is we're afraid of offending somebody. Why? Because if they leave the church, we lose their income. Well, they're our biggest donor, right? So in many cases, because of, what, because of the power someone may have, the influence they may have in the church, or, or, or because of a potential loss if it's addressed, we, we tend to, the church world at large, tends to ignore certain issues like that. And what, Paul, what breaks Paul's heart about this, as much as the sin, is that the church is proud. What are they proud of? Probably some idea about freedom in Christ, such that saying that you know, such sin like that doesn't matter. And we see that in our society today. You can't judge me. God loves me no matter what, Right? Now, obviously, we want people who are sinners, people who are messed up, people that are bound, people that are addicted, people that are perverted, we want them to get right with God, don't we? And we want them in our church, don't we? Jesus said he would make us fishers of men. But notice, we're not the ones that get to clean the fish. We only catch them. He cleans them, right? And so, and, and so it's, it's not saying here that we can't allow people who are in sin into the church. There's something very specific here. Paul commands the church to do something with this person that's walking in sin. And it says, put him out of the church. So the question then is, does this mean that if I slip up and commit a sin, that I'm going to get kicked out? No, of course not. Notice some things about this man's sin in 1 Corinthians 5. It's a grievous sin. First of all, it's incest, okay? This man is in an incestuous relationship. Even in the lax Greco-Roman world that this church finds itself in, in a culture where just about anything goes, I mean, this was a perverted, messed-up culture. And even in that culture, even the pagans were disgusted with this kind of sin. And so, so he says, you guys are proud, and this man's doing sin that even the pagans don't like. 
So it's, it's an extreme sin, for one thing. And yes, there are different levels of sin. The Bible talks about that there are some sins that lead to death and some that do not, right? And so it's a grievous sin. Secondly, it's a continual sin. Here's the thing. This is not a person who is struggling with an addiction or who has committed a sin and then wept over it for days. Right? Now, we listen, we've all messed up, haven't we? And some of us have messed up pretty bad, right? And so, when, aren't you thankful that 1 John tells us that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? If you come to me tonight and say, Pastor, I sinned, I need to make it right, I'm not going to give you the left foot of fellowship. We're going to sit down at the altar, we're going to kneel down at the altar, we're going to pray through, and we're going we're, we're we're to work through this thing, and we're going to find you healed and restored. That's the kingdom of God. Yes. Hallelujah. The key is, this guy was not repentant. He was flagrant about it, and even the church was like, yeah, that's just brother so-and-so. They were proud of it. And so this is unrepentant, continual sin. The guy's not sorry, and the guy's not stopping. And Paul says, put him out of the church. This excommunication, though, has to be handled in a godly way correct manner. It has to be addressed with grief. We grieve the sin. We grieve the discipline. If we have an attitude of vengeance, then we're guilty ourselves. This is the thing I hate about religion, is that it takes great pride in condemning. And this is, this is what the Pharisees got so off track about is they were so proud of their own righteousness and they took great pleasure. When they had the woman caught in adultery, this woman was found in sin. The, word, the, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And you just see them almost just foaming at the mouth, ready to put this woman to death. And see, if we take pleasure in saying, you know, you're a worthless sinner, get out. We're not going to have your kind in here. We're just like the Pharisees. And so if this kind of sin is addressed, it has to be addressed with grief. It has to be addressed with the same attitude as a parent spanking his child and saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Right? This, This communication has to be handled with grief. Secondly, it's to be addressed by those in authority. Jesus gives a pattern to follow in Matthew 18. I won't take the time to read it, but it's Matthew 18, 18, verses 15 through 18. Jesus tells us that we go to the person one-on-one. If that doesn't work, take someone with you. If that doesn't work, go before the leaders of the church. If that doesn't work, remove uh, freedom as a tax collector or a pagan. And in other words, someone that that we want to win, but someone that we cannot associate with. And so there's a process that we go through. And so it is to be handled in the correct manner. It's not to be handled publicly, at least not in the beginning. It's to be handled privately. One thing in in, in leadership, one of the first principles we learned in leadership was you always praise publicly, but you always correct in private. The Bible talks about that love covers a multitude of sins. Right? And that doesn't mean we cover it up like we pretend it's not there and let them get away with it. It means that we conceal it. We, 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 we honor or we show respect for the person that we are trying to address. We love covers that and covers them to protect them. Right? And so it has to be handled by those in authority. And then, then it has to be addressed in a spirit of restoration. 
It is church discipline, not church punishment. Right? And so discipline, the motive of discipline is to bring, if you discipline your child, you're not punishing them. You are correcting them to put them back on the right path. And the same thing is true when we, even in casting someone out of a church or disfellowshipping them, the purpose is not to punish them, to kick them out per se. The, the issue is to, turn, as Paul says, to turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit might be saved. The ultimate goal is restoration. So let's read in verses 4 and 5 again. He says, when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The ultimate goal is the salvation of the individual. So that raises the question, what does that mean to hand someone over to Satan? Primarily, it refers to removing the person from the fellowship of believers. That's the phrase they used in the New Testament to talk about disfellowshipping someone. In other words, you kick them out of the church, or and I don't want to put it quite that crudely, but you do remove them from the fellowship. So some struggle with the idea of a church kicking someone out, saying that the church isn't walking in love if they do that. But the truth is, the most loving thing a church can do when someone is in habitual, continual sin is to remove them from fellowship, to discipline them so that they can be restored. By doing that, you put them in a position to where hopefully their spirit can be saved. So there's two theories about what handing someone over to Satan means or what it entails. Number one, some say that it leads to physical death before they apostatize. In other words, when you turn them over to Satan, you're giving Satan permission to take their life, their physical life, before they go so far that they lose their salvation. That's one view. In other words, God killed them now while they can still make it to heaven, right? So so there's that view. The other view that's been held throughout history is, is that turning them over to Satan leads to the death of the carnal nature so that they can be restored to the faith. And that was the view of the early church. It's probably more in line with what Paul is saying. Another example that kind of illustrates this is in 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Look on the screen. He talks about holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have so suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hard Word and Alexander, (laughs) whom I have, watch this, he names two people, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not not to blaspheme. In other words, I've handed them over to Satan in hopes that they can be restored. Now, he didn't say, now, I want you guys to get ready. We're going to be having two funerals pretty soon because I handed these two guys over to Satan, <laughs> right? He's saying that they need to be, they've been handed over to Satan to be taught a lesson so that they learn not to blaspheme. So that seems to be what Paul has in mind here. Now, notice this. It is possible to shipwreck your faith and be lost. It's not a quick or easy thing in my opinion, but it is possible. I've heard it preached that, you know, well, if you sin, you lose your salvation. So you have to go and repent. You get your salvation back. And, you know, if you're in a car wreck, hopefully you don't say a bad word before you die and have time to repent, you know. Uh, and I mean, I've heard it preached like that. And that is ludicrous. I mean, God, even God does not have that much white out in the Lamb's book of life. Right? I do believe you can lose your salvation. I just don't think it's that easy. 
I think it's a process, generally speaking. And, and so the, the goal then of turning someone over to Satan is that they are corrected, their course corrected before that happens. The way I read the New Testament, I'm not certain that if someone loses their salvation, they can ever get it back. We can take time to study that, but, and I believe there's backslidden Christians that will still make it to heaven. I don't know where that line is. And that's why we should be afraid for them. It's because we don't know where that line is. All right? So, um, this is why restoration is so important. The goal of church discipline is to protect the person's eternal destiny, whether it's referring to physical death or dealing with the sin nature. Either way, there is a spiritual dimension to the act of church discipline. It's more than simply kicking someone out. It is a removal of a spiritual covering. Do you understand when you plant yourself in a local church, when you align yourself with a local church and say, I belong here and I believe God's called me here, you are submitting yourself to a spiritual covering that affords you some protection spiritually. And so by, by turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, you are removing that covering from them. In other words, it becomes open season on them spiritually. And so there is a spiritual implication there that um, it's kind of like it's kind of like this. The way I this is this is the gospel according to Chad. Okay, this never happened to me. My dad's sitting over here, so this never happened to me. But I've heard I know people this has happened to. Parents catch a kid smoking cigarettes. How many of your parents ever caught you smoking a cigarette? My mom caught me one time dipping skull. That's about as close as I got to that. But but uh, but. How many have had that happen? Some of you guys ever had that happen? Okay. So mom caught me dipping skull one time. That was a fun day. But uh, <laughs> you, you talk to some parents who, who they, catch their, they, they catch their kids smoking a cigarette. What do they make them do? Eat it. And or sometimes they make them smoke the whole pack until they turn green and start throwing up, Right. You know, that is a great way to ensure that that child never smokes a cigarette again. And so I, I think maybe this idea of church discipline, you remove that covering so that they're not just getting small doses of sin. Anything that's holding back the effects of that sin in their life, it just gets compounded on them to the point that they're like, whoa, I don't think this was such a good idea, right? And so... There is a spiritual dimension to this where the spiritual coverings is removed and begin, they begin to reap the results of their own behavior. It even speeds up the process. It's sort of like in Romans 1 where God says that because they did, did not acknowledge God as creator, they began to burn in lust for the creation rather than, rather than love for the creator to the point that God turned them over to their lust, and it became to the point that, that men began to lust for men, women began to lust for women, and said God turned them over to that, and they began to reap the consequences in their body of their sin. Right? Same thing. Romans chapter 1. Look it up. And if we want to, if we want to try to say that uh, same-sex marriage is biblically okay, as some churches are saying there, Romans 1 puts that to rest. The beginning... What will cause a homosexual spirit to take over is when we stop acknowledging God as creator. And, there's, and that's not just the only thing. It's a, it's a complicated thing. It's a very complicated... There's, there's genetic 
dispositions probably. There's certainly, um, there, there's certainly environmental factors being raised and, and, it's, and very often uh, abuse factors into it. So it's a very, very complex thing. But you cannot say God made you that way. Okay? And so, and so in the same way, when we, can't, when we turn some over to, to Satan, at times it, is, it essentially is, is turning someone over to that behavior and it speeds up the process. At times it certainly does lead to death probably. But hopefully it results in one being jolted back to reality. So that's what church discipline is. What does it do? Church discipline, not only does it help to bring discipline and hopefully restoration to the person, it also protects the purity of the church. It protects the purity of the church. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Paul continues, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, wait a minute. You're talking about a guy in incest, and now we're talking about baking bread? What is he talking about? Well, what is he talking about when he talks about the festival here? Well, keep in mind, this is the festival of unleavened bread. It's a Jewish festival. Keep in mind that these Corinthians were Jews. They were believers in Christ, but they were still Jews, and they were still keeping the cultural norms of Judaism, and they kept all the Jewish festivals. And so they kept all the feasts, all the practices. And so before the Passover feast, Jews prepare to observe it by purifying their homes and their temple from all leavened bread. And Paul is using that preparation, that physical preparation, to illustrate and represent the moral purity in the house and temple of God, the church. And so he's saying that, that you remove any, any unleavened bread, anything that is, or any, uh, excuse me, any, um, any leavened bread, uh, remove that so that it can be pure for God's house. So we purify God's house by getting the leaven out. The sin in Christ's body has to be removed so that it can be pure. Just as yeast works through the whole batch of doughs, sinful behavior, if left unchecked, will spread throughout the church and will affect the entire congregation. Amen. He's saying that Jesus is our Passover lamb, and he's saying here, Jesus' atonement was to free us from sin, not to free us to sin. Therefore, we must not tolerate heinous sin in our own lives or in the life of the church body. Have you ever noticed how bad attitudes spread quickly? Have you ever noticed that what you tolerate propagates? You know, what you put up with, that's exactly what you'll have. <coughs> and when you allow a bad attitude to continue, it not only grows and festers, but it spreads and so it's like the person that went to work and <coughs> was feeling fine, but this, this was the actual thing that a group did. They, they, they made a little pact among themselves to tell this person they looked like they felt terrible all day. 
They went in feeling fine. I was like, are you feeling okay? You just, you look pale. I mean, you look, you look so tired. And by the end of the day, he was like, I got to get home. I don't feel good, right? Yeah. That, that attitude just kind of perpetuated itself. And in the same way, when we allow bad attitudes, when we allow sinful behavior to just kind of go unchecked in the church realm, then it begins, we begin to say, well, you know, this is normal and everybody else does it and this is okay. And, and, and it just begins to spread. God, Jesus, saved us from sin. He set us free from the power of sin in our lives. So we say, well, if we address this, we might upset some people. We will upset the people that need to be upset. Right? Sincerity and truth are more important. Church discipline protects the purity of the church. Number three, church discipline separates Christians who don't behave like Christ. What we believe and how we behave must line up. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Now watch this. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of mine is it what or what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's some strong language right there. So the man in our first story this evening, and I open open today, told this pastor that he had no right to judge him. After all, he said, we're all sinners. Is that true? Well, yes, we are all sinners by nature. Jesus has redeemed us, though. Don't buy into this lie that everybody says, well, we're all just sinners saved by grace. No, we were sinners. Now we're saved by grace. God does not call the the believer a sinner. The Bible calls the believer a saint. Now, does that mean we never sin? Does not mean that at all. We're still dealing with the flesh, still being renewed day by day. And so, yeah, we're going to mess up from time time to time, but our nature has been transformed, and God does not label us sinners anymore. So, first of all, that's where that that doesn't work. So, So, he says we're all sinners. We're not. On the contrary, we are commanded to judge those with sin. In the church. Well, I just don't believe we should judge others. God disagrees. He says we are commanded to judge those in the church. What about judge not that you not also be judged according to uh, Matthew, I think it's chapter 7. Well, if you actually read that chapter, he's he's not saying don't judge. He's saying don't judge harshly. Don't judge inappropriately. He says because the way you judge is how you will be judged. So we can't take an isolated verse like that and say, well, God says, judge not that you not be judged. Read the whole chapter, right? Don't just read one verse. Read the whole chapter. And so we are commanded to judge sin within the church. It's not an issue of judging hearts, mind you. It's a matter of judging actions. It's a matter of judging behavior. You cannot tell me that a person committing incest is right with God. 
And that's the point Paul's making. This person is not right with God. Oh, no, you can't judge. I can look at his behavior and tell you a person who's right with God does not behave that way. The Bible says they're not. So, if they're turned over to Satan and die, will they go to heaven or will they go to hell? Well, that's God's judgment to make. Thankfully, we don't have to make that call. But our judgment as leaders in the church is to judge whether or not the behavior is what Christ commanded. Please note this. People say, well, I I just think you ought to treat everybody the same. That's ludicrous. We don't treat everybody. Nobody treats everybody the same. Do we treat a criminal the same way we treat a law-abiding citizen? Of course not. Do we treat a baby the same way we treat a grown person? I hope not. I mean, I don't want to go to a baby and say, you know, you need to really get up off your diaper and get to work. (laughs) Right? And we don't speak to a 35-year-old man and say, oh, he's so cute. Look at him. Did he go poo-poo? You know? We don't do that, do we? We, <laughs> we relate to people based on where they are in maturity. Right? We relate to people based on their level of maturity. And so we're not called to treat everybody the same. And we don't treat those who know Christ the same. Excuse me. We don't treat those who don't know Christ the same. We don't hold them to the same standard, in other words, as those who are supposedly mature in their faith. Our tendency, our natural tendency is to avoid sinning sinners outside of the church, but then we tolerate sinning Christians within the church. We condemn the homosexual down the street, but ignore the glutton in the mirror. Right? Why? Because most, at least, you know, not as much in our current condition of the world, but in years past, most of those sins that we find repulsive were outside of our area of influence, and it was outside our comfort, or outside of our, our, our area to where we, you know, where we had to deal with it. So it was comfort, comfortable to condemn the folks out there. But then when we start talking about, you know, the Bible lists gossip and gluttony and sloth and ambition and jealousy in the same list that he lists murder and, 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 and homosexual behavior and everything else. And so it's all right there together. And so when we say, well, you know, God does not, does not uh, ordain homosexuality, and we say, amen. And you know what? God doesn't in, in, endorse laziness or gluttony or gossip or slander either. And we say, now, pastor, don't go to meddling in my life. Right? And so we say, well, you know, I just don't think we should let people like that in our church. Well, then where else are they supposed to go? That's like saying, well, you know, this person's really sick. He doesn't need to go to the hospital. That's exactly where he needs to be. Watch, out, watch this. Watch what Jesus did. Think about who Jesus hung out with in Matthew 9, verse 10 through 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, now keep in mind, Matthew was a tax collector. This He just met Matthew, okay? Matthew wasn't the disciple yet. He was the tax collector. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And boy, that was a slam to the Pharisees. When he was saying, I, I don't, I, I'm not come looking for sacrifice. Well, they were sacrificing. They would spend all that time in prayer. They would give their money. They would do all the rituals, and they would go to the temple. And, and God is saying, you know, remember what God said in the Old Covenant? He said, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Your religious activity is fine and all, but that's really not what God's looking for. He wants you to show mercy to those who are far from God. That's what Jesus did. But now consider who Jesus lashed out at. Look at Matthew 23, verses 23 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean out the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. Is there more? Okay. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So this is sort of a weird juxtaposition here. Think about this. When he's around sinners, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, he's called the friend of sinners. He's going to dinner parties with them. He gets around the religious people and like, You blind guys, you hypocritical people! You're like whitewashed tombs, all dressed up and pretty on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. You see how we get this backwards? And so, maybe some of us need to quit hanging around sinning Christians and start hanging around sinning sinners. Oh, but they're sinners. Well, of course. They, they sin. They do bad things. Well, of course they do. They're sinners. What do sinners do? They sin. That's why they're sinners, right? The contradiction is when you get Christians that continue in sin. And that's what God cannot abide. So when Paul tells us to not hang out with sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, or swindlers, he's talking about the ones in the church. He closes the section by saying, expel the wicked man from among you. So he's not talking about the swindlers and idolaters out there. He's talking about the ones in here. He says, don't even eat with such people. Now, we think, well, you mean I can't even go to Burger King and sit down? You know, we have a brand new Burger King up here on Exit 11. We can't even go up to Exit, Exit, I'm sorry, Exit 100. Thank you. Uh, we, we can't even go to Exit 100 and, and sit down and have a Whopper with a sinner. That's not what he's saying. In, in that culture... If you sat down at a meal, with, this is why it was so scandalous that Jesus was having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Because if you sat down at a meal with somebody, it was a statement that you were, in essence, um, accepting them as, as part of your family. It was like you know, that you embraced that person. And so he's saying, don't, don't, don't even go to that kind of level with people who are continually in sin that claim to be believers. So this is the point then that Yes, we want sinners in our church. 
And yes, I want them to feel welcome. If they're seeking God, then we want them to know about the love of Christ, the same love he showed the tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes of his day. But then there are those that should know better, that they've walked with Christ, that they've been trained in the, in the, in the way of Christ, and, and yet they choose to live a lifestyle of sin. And again, not that they mess up. I mean, a person could even say that they, you know, they committed adultery and come and confess it. And yeah, there may be repercussions, but we're going to work with them and bring healing and restoration to them. That's, okay, that's not the issue. The issue is those that say, yeah, I'm doing this and I don't see anything wrong with it. And you're not going to tell me what to do. And in that circumstance... Paul says, I can't believe you're putting up with this. Paul says, you need to expel that person. Not to punish them, but to turn them over to their sin for the destruction of the carnal nature so that ultimately the kingdom purposes of their life can be fulfilled. This, I believe, is really part of the missing ingredient in the American church. Say, we need revival in the American church. We need to get, you know, a big move of the Spirit. I agree. But if we allow besetting sin to continue in the church and then just try to concentrate on whipping up something in a service, then we are uh, we're relying on emotionalism. When we, when we hold one another accountable, to get the, the leavened out of the batch of dough, we create an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit can move more powerfully and where the sinner that comes in will be convicted by the Holy Spirit's presence. It's not love that let it continue. No, it's not love to let it continue. So the American, generally speaking, the American idea of church is you know, put on a show and get people to come and get them to come back. And obviously there's an element to that. But understand, you're not, you don't come to church here like it's a movie theater. You know? Uh, I'm not Avengers Endgame here tonight. You know? I'm not here to entertain. You know what movie I'm going to see in a couple weeks. I'm not here to entertain, though hopefully you do enjoy and you laugh and you enjoy the fellowship and all of that, but my role here is, as a pastor is to show you the way more clearly. And if you're not on the right path, to show you what that path is. And so, what about our two examples from the beginning of the message? Was the pastor correct to ask the person to step down from leadership? Yep, he was. And if the man did not repent, then he should have been disfellowshipped as well. There was a pastor at a church that I candidated for, actually, before I took my first church. He uh, molested a number of women counselees and in the church. I, I don't remember the number, but it was a significant number. But <clears throat> some of these women were not even members of the church, and many of them didn't know each other, so there was no collusion or any kind of um, you know, plan against him. And so our 
leadership in our district stepped in. They removed him from the church. They disfellowshipped or, or removed his credentials. But he refused to go through a disciplinary process to be restored. In fact, he went down the street and opened an independent church at um, community center or something. And last I heard, I don't know for sure, but last I heard he was still there uh, some 20 years later. Um, it's not right. Um, so that's the first example. What, what about the second one, the, the church in Florida? Was it correct to threaten to expose this woman's sin publicly, even though she'd already left the church? No. First, the point is not to expose the sin, but rather to restore the person. Galatians tells us that when someone is caught in a sin, that we who are spiritual are to restore them gently in a spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. And so the point was to restore the person, not expose them. Besides, the person had already left the church. How can you excommunicate an ex-attendee? She was no longer under their authority. There was no redemption in their threat. It was only punishment. So is church discipline an issue that can be abused? Absolutely it is. Some of you have been in churches where, it is, where, where there has been abuse uh, for the sake of one leader's ego and pride. And for that I'm very sorry. But any area of faith can be abused. And we must not allow those who are off track to keep us from doing what God has commanded us. Understand this, that we in the, in the church world in America, we now follow Jesus in exile. What do I mean by that? Our culture is no longer Judeo-Christian based. At its foundation it was, but it no longer functions that way. We are believers in exile. And so... Our culture does not adhere to biblical values. Our culture wants to try to redefine how the church handles these kinds of issues. Trying to get the church to embrace things like homosexual marriage, transgenderism, or, or any number of, of, of uh, issues that God has clearly spoken about in His Word. And so we must not allow the culture to dictate our standards. We hold to God's Word, and raising that standard draws others to Christ. But we must be careful that God's love and compassion is evident through us as we take those stands. When I was at AGTS a few months ago, or a month ago, our professor was telling us that back at the end of the last presidential administration, they were sending people to all the... Uh, accredited Christian colleges, universities, seminaries, any of them that received federal, that had federal aid available through them. And they were trying to find any instance of these schools not admitting someone because of their sexual preferences. And they were gathering this in a database. And, and it, was, it was a well-known fact. In fact, it was so blatant that all, that many of the uh, college presidents across the nation, Christian college presidents, had a meeting to address what are we going to do about this. And the plan was, if the election had gone the other way, that they were going to begin coming after those universities uh, that had not admitted someone because of their sexual preferences to remove their federal funding. So under, understand, so, well, what's the big deal? We'll do it on our own. You don't, you don't understand. Without the federal funding, 
most of our universities would go under. And, and so what that begins to cripple um, much of the processes of establishing ministers throughout the church world in America. We would end up having to go completely non-accredited and, 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 and make education a lot more difficult and become, it would be a mess. And so you understand that is the environment that our, in spite of you know, who may be in the Oval Office right now or in spite of who may be sitting in certain seats in Congress, the overall tide of our culture is pushing in that direction. And it will happen. There will come a day, I'll tell you right now, that they will, mark my words, there will come a day where the tax-exempt status of churches will be taken away in the U.S. And when that happens, it's going to create all kinds of financial problems because many people, not all, but unless someone is really committed to the tithe, they give because it benefits them tax-wise. And so, uh, so the churches are going to begin to get crippled financially. If we remove their tax-exempt status, then, and, then, and then there's just a, a, a snowball effect that will begin to happen. Well, that's the reality of the culture we live in. So then we have to make that decision. Are we going to abide by God's standards regardless of the consequences? Or are we going to succumb to the culture and play nice? Such is the dilemma we face in America today as the church. So, I'll just leave you with this. I just wanted to lay this groundwork tonight to understand, for you to understand, we are all accountable to each other. And we are not here simply to entertain. We are here to follow Christ more perfectly. And so understand this, though, that we, when we discipline, we do it with love. We do it with compassion. We always do it with the ultimate goal of restoration. Because I want people to be set free. Let's stand together.